Welcome to Female Fear Factory, the podcast, a space where people share their experience with fear inherited from the systems designed to keep certain people from stepping into the joy of their personhood. On this podcast, you will hear about when fear has hurt and when community is healed. The Female Fear Factory is a performance of patriarchal policing of and violence towards women and others cast female who are therefore considered safe to violate. When you hear this quote from your book, what comes to the forefront of your mind? What comes to the forefront of my mind when I hear that quote are the many ways in which the Fear Factory and thinking about fear is important um, for for understanding how patriarchy works, not just in relation to violence, but generally as a as a as a regime of 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 control. When I coined the phrase "female fear factory," I was trying to understand rape culture, not just how it manifests, where we have evidence of its existence, and so on, because. That's very important. But I think a lot of work has been done on that. And I generally am convinced by by that body of work. I wanted to understand why and how it becomes a culture, a rape culture, not just a rape phenomenon or a rape pattern or a rape trend. We're all told repeatedly that culture is dynamic. And we're told this even though we don't always experience it as dynamic, um, right? I understood that culture being dynamic meant something about the people who circulate, produce, or sometimes intersect and interrupt it. So I thought, given that rape culture is seen across the world, we are in the grip of it, there's something that enables it to travel very well, to remap or remake very large territories, territories of the mind, institutions, societies. But cultures are also very specific. So it's this peculiar combination of the particular and the successfully translatable. That was the question I was asking at the heart. That seems to me to be at the heart of understanding what makes rape culture culture. So that's how I came up on Female Fear Factory as a way in which women are made ready to violate. I understood that fear, or at least it see, it felt instinctively initially before I gave it much thought, that fear was a very important part of rape culture. But because we all conditioned to think of fear as an individual experience, I had to formulate the notion of how fear can be a productive collective experience that's productive and useful for control. So yes, the factory makes fear and it makes people female. Between 2015, when I first came up with Female Fear Factory um, and published a chapter named thus in Rape South African Nightmare and the new book, Female Fear Factory, I have been able to fine-tune exactly how that factory works and to realize it doesn't just work under rape culture, which was my initial area of fascination, but other places like femicide, sexual harassment, 
bodily autonomy, legal restrictions, as well as in other contexts that don't immediately seem to be about gender, like xenophobia, for example. My sense of myself coming to understand myself as safe to violate based solely on my gender identity is something that happens, I think, through a sequence of of events quite early on in my life. Um, A sequence of events that happened to me when I entered puberty at about nine, I think, when the body gradually starts to look different to the eye. First, a boy I'd been playing with since I was a toddler spread a rumor at school about me that he'd had sex with me. It was a graphic story with mention of blood and, you know, the mythical virginal blood. I remember experiencing it as a deep betrayal from him because it was the kind of story you told to recklessly unsettle and more a girl. The story circulated. I was hurt even more so because of its source. It made me a certain type of girl, a girl that could be laughed at, a sex-having grown girl, even though, of course, this was not my sense of myself and also wasn't true. Not too long after that, I think while I was still probably nine, maybe 10, not too long after that, an older man, or at least someone who seemed to me a much older man, but I think now realistically, because he was an undergraduate at a university at the time, he probably was in his very late teens or early 20s. He said something to me. I had thought of him as an adult because, yes, because when you're nine, anyone older than 15 is ancient. (laughs) And he'd been to my house many times with an older family friend's child or something. So he was sort of vaguely connected to me, but kind of in in a very familiar, in a very familiar way. Anyway, one day as I ran in a game, past him, greeting him in the manner that you greet, you know, older people, but older people that you encounter often. So not overly not overly formal, casual, but respectful, which also means, of course, because I knew him, I had seen him so many times. I saw him regularly. I didn't stop to greet him in the kind of differential, formal way that I, that, you know, that I, that, 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 I'm, that was socialized into. So I kept moving. But he stopped me and asked me, do you have hair here yet? Touching his pubic area. I was shocked and humiliated. I gave him a furious look and stormed off because I was also a very dramatic nine-year-old. So I knew enough to storm off. I told my mother very soon after that. And she unleashed her full fury on him and forced him to apologize to me. And he was also no longer allowed in our home. I never spoke to him again. I understood even at that very early age, I knew that that particular humiliation happened to me because I was a girl. I also watched constantly how my friend Pamela, probably in other parts of the world and other parts of South Africa would be called Pamela now, but certainly as a child called herself Pamela and we called her Pamela. How my friend Pamela, who was deemed more tomboyish than was allowed, openly and constantly commented on. 
and how everybody, even children, children and adults alike, felt it was okay to say crazy things about not acting right like a girl. And so I started to understand the sense that anybody could comment on you if you were a girl or any range of things, could humiliate you on a lie, could mock you for being yourself, could ask you inappropriate, um, embarrassing questions um, and, 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 and so on. And of course, these lessons were just reinforced by several experiences, um, some of which I write about in, in the closing chapter of Female Fear Factory. So based on these stories, and I suppose a range of other lessons that you learn about just how much access people have to you as a girl and as as I grow into a woman, as a woman, I started to police myself in a variety of ways. Firstly, I there's the kind of conventional policing that I think we all really kind of bullied into, certainly in Southern Africa, which is about when women or girls may be out and about. And it's usually codified as if you don't stay out too late or you don't go out too early when it's dark, when it's not light enough, you can be safe. And of course, many of us, I think probably, I would venture to say almost all girls and women, know that this is not entirely safe, not entirely true. That we know that we get sexually harassed during the day, um, that we get grabbed during the day, that all sorts of things happen to girls and women during the day. But nonetheless, I think that one of the ways, one of the most significant ways in which I have policed myself has been in relation to, to just when I, when and where I go. I think because these stories were my first stories were about the ways in which my own body or the suggestion of my sexuality or access to me sexually was also such an important part of how I learned about myself as safe to, to, to violate. Interestingly, my one of my responses was to try as much as possible to, to be in control of the way in which my sexuality was talked about. Um, which then, of course, is 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 also, which very soon became not just kind of an honesty and a directness and an owning my own sexuality, but it also became a, 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 a complicated process of, of 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 masking. Because on the one hand, in my twenties, I was already calling myself um, a feminist. On the other hand, I was just as afraid in many ways, as many women socialize in patriarchal societies of being labeled and a, a woman easily available for sexual, for sexual intercourse. And so I think that, 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 that historically was the area in which I most, I most kind of heavily policed myself. Not so much in terms of what I did or did not do, but really kind of controlling um, the, the public <laughs> expression of of that of that um sexuality because i was i've just never been very good at sustaining self-policing when it comes to when i go out or when i'm out and about in in you know close proximity to dusk or 
or dawn. I do it on and off, but I, I, I've not been able to sustain um, self-policing in that particular area. This policing or self-policing has definitely shifted in the last few years. Part of it is because I'm older, I'm 49. So in many ways, I want... <laughs> Controlling me sexually is not as important for patriarchy, I suppose, as I as I approach menopause, as it seems to be for women and girls and women who are who are who are younger. And so, yes, it has definitely shifted quite significantly. I think that I am less. I'm I'm completely unapologetic about about my sexuality however it expresses itself I um, am decidedly I've cultivated an indifference over how I'm read sexually in, in kind of public legibility um, and so that's 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 shifted significantly in terms of moving about I get a lot of flack from my family around what time I walk. So I, I, I like to walk. I don't, I'm not a runner. I like to walk. And I like to walk almost every day wherever I am. And um, South Africa is a very um, regiment, like violent public um, space. Women are abducted. And I mean, there's long histories of this that go back several centuries. So there's this hyper vigilance about when you go out and when you don't go out and how you go out. Um, which of course I'm a woman of my society, but again, as I've as I grow older and as I suppose I grow, I, I I I have become more selective about where I spend my energy. I go out anyway. I go out whenever. I walk whenever. I won't generally walk when it's too dark. So the self policing has not completely disappeared. But that's not so much because I fear that worse things will happen to me when it's dark. It's just because I'm very aware of how much harder the aftermath will be for me at the judgment level, at the legal level, if something does happen to me and it's dark. I went out um, in the dark, after dark, before light. Because violence is still present. um, And one of the ways in which I... So I think about what it means to create fear-free spaces all the time at an individual level as well as at a collective level and it's it's really clear to me that fear-free spaces are really mostly a collective project if they if they're going to succeed to end the female fear factory and i'm very aware of the layers of vulnerability that attach themselves to anyone who belongs to you know anyone who's a woman belongs to any of those categories that are safe to violate do i have safe spaces yes my home is one um and i realize that this is not necessarily the case for many women and girls across the world but you know my home is is one safe space for me i've also been part of actively cultivating certain kinds of safe spaces since my 20s so some of those are organizational sometimes it really is about just consistently, actively contributing to that larger project, that larger collective project, while recognizing that safety from fear and the female fear factory is not really possible until until every one of us is no longer safe to violate without consequence. And also that things do shift 
So that collective project is not a pointless one. Cultures can and are changed by people through stubborn and sustained resistance and imagination all the time. I am Pumla Dinawagola, author of Female Fear Factory, Unraveling Patriarchy's Cultures of Violence. And this has been my Female Fear Factory story.